So this summer at CWC, we're talking about faith. And we're looking at the uh, passage of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And as I was thinking about faith in my own life, I was thinking about one of the earliest pictures, perhaps the very first picture that I remember that for me has been a picture of what faith looks like and how it functions. It really happened on the day that I learned how to swim. Okay. Now you have to understand, I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in the state of Delaware. We lived about 30 minutes from the ocean. And so when I was a kid from my earliest days on this planet, on Saturday mornings, we would get up, pack the cooler with snacks and drinks. We would throw our beach chairs and our sand toys in the back of the car, and we would go to the ocean. This was what Saturday looked like for our family. It was awesome. And uh, we would go to the beach and we would play in the sand and we would play in the water and we would have a great time. As the day would wind down, we would go up on the boardwalk, we'd have some pizza, we'd go to the amusement park on the boardwalk and ride rides and play games and, and then Saturday night we'd go home. It was a wonderful life. We did this almost every Saturday till my sister was born and then I think the finances changed somehow and we didn't do it anymore. Um, but when I would go to the ocean as a kid, I would stand on the shore and the water would come up and it would crash around my feet and would lap up and hit me on the legs. But I didn't go deep into the ocean because I didn't know how to swim. And the ocean is a serious thing. If, if you've never been swimming in the ocean, if you don't really know how to swim or you're not a good swimmer, you have to be careful because the undertow, the water that crashes on the shore, when it rushes back out to sea, if you're not careful, it will pull you under and it will drag you out to sea. And if you don't know how to swim, you can drown quickly. I didn't know how to swim and I didn't want to drown, so I stayed pretty close to the shore. As I got a little bit older, I would wade out a little bit further, maybe water up to my waist. I could still stand there and be pretty stable and be pretty secure, but I still didn't know how to swim. One weekend, our family decided that we weren't going to the ocean. We were going to take a trip to Williamsburg, Virginia. Now, I have to be honest, I don't remember anything about this trip. I don't remember why we went there. I don't remember what we did or where we stayed. All I know is that we went to Williamsburg and we stayed in a hotel that had a pool. It's the only thing I remember. And when we stayed at this pool, we took an afternoon, this hotel, we took an afternoon and we played at the pool. And I remember being in the shallow end and because that's where I had to be because I didn't know how to swim. My dad, though, was a really good swimmer, and he was down on the other end diving off the diving board and swimming in the deep end. And I remember thinking as a little kid, I was probably four or five years old, that I wanted to be in the deep end with my dad. So I got out of the pool, and I walked along the pool deck all the way down to the deep end of the pool where my dad was, and I stood on the edge of the deck. My dad was out in the pool. My dad said, Chris, just jump in. Just jump in. I've been teaching you the techniques for swimming. You haven't quite picked it up yet, but just jump in. You can kick your feet. You can paddle your arms. You'll figure it out. Just jump in and start swimming. And there was something about that moment that I thought to myself, I, I think I can do this. And so I remember standing there, and I probably bent my knees and got ready to jump maybe six or eight times and then kind of backed out because I was just too scared. I just didn't know what would happen if I jumped into that water. But my dad was there, he just kept challenging me, he just kept inviting me, and he kept promising me, I'm here and I've got you. And so 
I got a moment of courage. All the boldness that my little five-year-old body could muster, and I just ran and I jumped off the side towards my dad. Now, I have to be honest. In my mind, I thought my dad was going to catch me. I thought he was going to catch me and hold me above the water and all would be well. But see, my dad wasn't just trying to get me to experience the fun of jumping in the pool. My dad was trying to teach me how to swim, so he didn't catch me. I hit the water and I realized there were no arms around me and I started to sink. This was a sink or swim moment. And I started kicking my legs for all I was worth and moving my arms for all I was worth and I started to come up out of the water. And when I came up out of the water, the first thing I saw was my dad in front of me, huge smile on his face. You're doing it, you're swimming on your own, way to go. And he just kept backing up and I swam all the way across the pool. That was the moment I learned how to swim. And for me, that's become a picture of what faith is. I heard my dad's voice as I stood on the edge of that pool deck and I I, I looked out at him, I, I knew who he was, I knew I could trust him, I knew that he loved me and that he wouldn't let anything happen to me, he wouldn't let me drown and so there was safety in that moment, even though it was risky, even though it was scary, even though it made me afraid, I knew he was there and he had me and so I was able to jump into the pool and start swimming. See, as people of faith, we are called to listen and hear God's voice. And we're called to take God at his word, and we're called to do what God tells us to do. That's what faith is. Faith listens, it trusts, and it obeys. It listens so it can hear the voice of God. It trusts by taking God at his word, and it obeys by doing what God tells us to do. This is what faith is. The writer of the book of Hebrews points to Noah as an example of this kind of faith, as someone who heard the voice of God, who took God at his word, and who did what God asked him to do. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse seven, it says this, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, Noah heard the voice of God. And when he heard that voice, it says, in holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. He took God at his word and he did what God told him to do. And over the next little bit this morning, I want us to think together about Noah's story because I think there are two or three lessons from Noah's story that are helpful for us as we seek to become the people of faith that God has called us to be. So we pick up the story in Genesis chapter six. It was read for us just a little bit ago. And as we begin the story, what we see is God looking down on humanity. And in that moment of looking down on humanity, he realizes that humanity is wicked. It's full of evil. And in fact, he says all of their thoughts and all of their inclinations are only evil all of the time. And when God looks at humanity and he sees their evil condition, God's heart is broken. The passage actually says that God is deeply troubled. And in fact, he regrets ever making human beings. And he determines in that moment, Genesis chapter six, verse seven, that he is gonna wipe the human race off the face of the planet. This is is God not in the way we're used to seeing him. 
We talk about God being a God of love and a God of grace, but here we see God looking down on humanity, seeing that they're wicked and they're evil, and God regrets making them, and he's gonna wipe them off the face of the planet. And I gotta be honest with you, as I was preparing this week, I thought, how can I not talk about this? right? Because this is not something we want to come to church and hear about. A God who looks at humanity, sees their wickedness, and then wipes them off the face of the planet. Who wants to spend a Sunday talking about that? I don't. It's a hard truth, but it is truth. See, when we look at Genesis chapter 6, we find, we, we find out something about God, and we find out something about ourselves, See, the reality is, is that you and I in our world today, we, we have this perception that we are the ones who get to write the rules for our lives. We determine what is acceptable and what's not acceptable, what we deem appropriate and not appropriate, and we kind of write our own rules and laws for morality, and we set the course for our lives, and we assume in our world that we can live however we want to live. What Genesis chapter six teaches us is that, in fact, we're right We get to write the rules for our lives. We get to determine what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. We get to set the course for how we live our lives and we can do whatever we want to do. But what Genesis 6 also teaches us is that when we get to the end, we don't get to take the rules we've written and hand them to God so we can be judged by them. The only rules and standards that we will be judged by are God's standards, not ours. This is important for us to realize in our lives because what it says to us is that we must spend our lives attempting to discern and understand what God's desires and plans and purposes are for us, for humanity, for the world, so that we can then align our lives to his plan and his purpose and his intention. If we go through our lives and we write our own rules and we do things our own way, when we get to the end, we are gonna be surprised because God will judge us. And he's not gonna judge us by the rules we write. He will judge us by the rules and standards that are in his own heart and mind. That's what he does in Genesis chapter six and what we see is again a hard truth but it's one we must understand. God hates sin. We have to see this and we have to say this. It's not popular to say it, it's not popular to think about it but it is important. In fact, I would say it is critical for us to realize how God views sin. He looks down at humanity, they're wicked, they're evil, and he regrets having made them. In our world today, we talk an awful lot about God loves us so much, and he does, and I'm thankful he does, but we've used that truth and that teaching to to help justify our behavior. We've thought to ourselves, God loves us so much that he just wants us to be happy. So he'll excuse our behavior, he'll look the other way. He doesn't really care about our lifestyle choices when in fact God cares a lot about those kind of decisions that we make. We see that in Genesis chapter six. God sees the choices of humanity and they have gone far away from what he intended for their lives and God is saddened and regretful. He's disappointed, he's troubled and in fact he is angry 
and it causes him to bring wrath and judgment on humanity. This isn't a fun thing to talk about on a Sunday morning, but it's important because it's a part of who God is. God looks down at the world and he sees their wickedness and their evil and right in the middle of this entire world that's gone away from God, he sees one, only one, one individual, one man, one person who is not living like the world, one person who has made a decision to live his life for God. Genesis chapter six about verse nine tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this leads us to the first lesson I think we can learn from Noah's story, and it is this, that faith, the kind of faith that Noah demonstrated is rooted in relationship. You see, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, I think, because he had a relationship with God. Now, we know this because the passage tells us that Noah was righteous and blameless, and it says that he walked faithfully with God. Now, we're not privy to Noah's uh, life with God. We don't know all of the details. We don't know his worship patterns. We don't know his uh, daily prayer rhythms. We don't know his devotional habits. But what we know about Noah is that he lived his life in line with God's desires and plans. We know this because the passage says Noah was righteous and blameless. In other words, Noah took the time to find out what God wanted from him and then Noah aligned his life with God's desires. The second thing we know is that Noah walked with God. And again, we don't know all of what that looked like, but the terminology here suggests an intimate relationship, a connection that Noah had with God and this relationship that Noah had with God, it shaped every part of his life. This idea of walking with God faithfully suggests devotion, it suggests commitment, and it suggests consistency in that over time. Third thing we know about Noah is that he knew how to listen to God. Genesis 6.13 begins, so God said to Noah, and what follows is God telling Noah what's gonna happen, that he's gonna destroy the earth. And then he tells Noah that he needs to build an ark to save his family and he gives him all of the instructions and we know that Noah knew how to hear the voice of God and understand it as God's voice because later in the passage we're told twice that Noah did everything that God commanded him to do. Noah looked at God's desires and plans, lined his life up with that. He walked with God and he knew how to hear God's voice. And when you take those things together, what you realize is Noah had a relationship with God. And it is this relationship that forms the foundation of Noah's life of faith and his act of faith that's gonna come because he knows God. Here's the lesson for us. If you wanna be a person of faith, it begins in cultivating your relationship with God. If you don't take the time to learn about who God is and what God desires from your life by reading the scriptures and by spending time with the Lord, and if you don't carve out space in your life to listen to God and to hear his voice, and if you're not willing to line your life up with his desires and do what God's telling you to do, you'll never be able to live the life of faith. It's talked about in Hebrews chapter 11. But if you give yourself to those things, you can become the person of faith that God wants you to be. See, one cannot do what the life of faith requires of us 
apart from a relationship with God. Which brings me to the second lesson from Noah's life, which is this, faith is a verb. Noah is not in Hebrews chapter 11 because he had a great devotional life. He's not in Hebrews chapter 11 because he knew God or he walked with God. Those things are great and they're important and they're a part of Noah's story and they're really essential to Noah's life of faith. But Noah is found in Hebrews chapter 11 because he built an ark. He he did what God told him to do. He took God at his word and he acted. God said build an ark and Noah did it. That's why he's in Hebrews chapter 11 because faith is a verb. Now a couple things to say here. One is that, again, relationship is critically important. Noah's being asked to do something that's never been done before, right? To build an ark. He was the first one in his neighborhood to do this. No one else had ever done this before and God comes and says, build an ark on dry ground because I'm going to flood the earth. A flood had never happened before and I'm doing that because I'm gonna destroy all of the world. So Noah, I need you to do this. Noah's being asked to do something really hard here. Why in the world would Noah have the faith to do something that hard and that new and that difficult? because he knew the person who was asking him to do it. That's why. I had the courage to jump off the edge of that pool that day, not because of the confidence I had in myself to to swim. I was able to jump off the edge of the pool because of who was inviting me to do it. I knew him, I trusted him, and when he said, I'm here, I've got you, that's all I needed to know, and it gave me the courage to take the next step. Relationship is foundational in faith. The second thing, though, that we need to see is that faith always leads us into obedience. It always leads us into action because faith is action. Faith is a verb. This is why James can say faith without works is dead because faith without works, it's not faith. You can't say that you heard God's voice and you know what he wants you to do and then not do it and claim to have faith. You obviously don't. If you've heard God's voice and you know what he wants you to do in order to claim to being a person of faith, you have to actually do what God told you to do. That's what faith is and that's what faith looks like. This is important for you to hear today because some of you have been told by God to put something down. God's asked you to give up a relationship that's leading you astray. He's asked you to put down a sinful behavior that's holding you back. He's asked you to give up a pursuit. Maybe it's a good pursuit, but it's distracting you from becoming everything God wants you to be. God's asked you to do something, to put that thing down. And the question is not, have you heard God? The question is not, do you know what God wants you to do? The question for you today is, will you do it? Being a person of faith means putting things down. Sometimes God asks us to pick something up. Maybe it's a role or it's a responsibility. Maybe it's to spearhead a project. Maybe it's to lead an organization. Maybe it's to answer his call to ministry or to missions. Maybe it's something else that God's put on your heart. God doesn't always ask us to give things up. Sometimes he asks us to pick things up. 
so that we can do the things he's calling us to do. Here's the point. If God is asking you to put something down or pick something up and you have heard his voice, now it is your responsibility to do whatever he's asked you to do. That's faith. That's what faith is, simply just doing what God has asked you to do. And here's the thing, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if we want to be people who are walking with God and pleasing God with the way we live our lives, when we hear God's voice, we have to take him at his word and we have to do what he said to do because that's faith. And when we act in faith, we please God. Faith is a verb. One more lesson this morning and then we'll wrap up. Faith is costly. Faith is costly. Hebrews 11 verse seven says this, that by faith Noah condemned the world. One commentator spent quite a bit of time talking about how did Noah actually condemn the world and he suggested two ways that Noah did this. First, Noah condemned the world by his lifestyle. The very fact that all of humanity, all of the human race in Noah's day was moving away from God. They were wicked and evil. They only thought about evil all of the time. And right in the middle of that culture, Noah's going the opposite direction, toward God and for God. And just by his very lifestyle, by the fact that he was living an alternative lifestyle in the midst of that culture, condemned the world that he lived in. This commentator said, upright character always condemns the wicked without even saying a word because it is a testimony of a different way of life. That's the first way Noah condemns the world. The second way, though, that this commentator suggested that Noah condemned the world is through his message. And the commentator got into a little bit of conjecture here. He, he said that he thought that as Noah was building an ark on dry ground, people would come and ask questions, and they probably did. And when they asked questions, Noah had to give a response. He had to tell them about the coming judgment. He had to tell them about what God was doing. He had to tell them about why he was building an ark and that this ark would be the way that he and his family would be saved. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that Noah had these conversations. We don't know how people responded to Noah. If they asked questions, if they ridiculed him, if they rejected him, we don't know. But one thing we can assume is that whatever Noah was doing was very difficult. I mean, think about it for a minute. He is going against the entire stream, not just of a good portion of the world, but all of it. He is swimming upstream in a culture that's going the other way. And by his life and by his willingness to hear God's voice and do what God said, he is doing something that's countercultural. And as he's doing it, he's doing something that's completely new territory. No one's ever done this before. So he's stepping out on a limb for sure. And as he's doing it, he is pronouncing judgment on the world. This is not an easy place for Noah to be. When you think about all of that, you realize faith is costly. Go back to the thing that maybe came to mind when I said that there are some things you might need to put down or maybe there's something you need to pick up and think about that thing that came to mind. 
And just think for a minute about the cost associated with that thing. What happens if you put it down? What happens if you pick it up? What are the costs that you will have to pay to commit to that act of faith? It might be risky. You might fail. If you do what God's asking you to do, there's no guarantee of success. You might fail, so it's risky. It's uncomfortable. Usually when we are asked to to do something of faith, to put our faith in action, it's uncomfortable because it's hard. It's not the way we would choose to do it. It's not the story we would write, but it's what God wants us to do. Sometimes it's unpopular. If you make that decision to put that thing down or to pick this thing up, the people that know you might ridicule you. They might reject you. Sometimes what God asks you to do, it's countercultural. It goes against everything else that culture stands for at that time. But God's invited you to go that way, and so you're swimming upstream. You see, faith is costly. But here's what I want you to see whatever the cost is for faith, it's always worth it. It is always worth it. Hebrews 11 tells us without faith it is impossible to please God, but when we act in faith, when we hear God's voice, take him at his word and do what he's asking us to do, in that moment, we are putting our faith in action and we are pleasing God. And God rewards people who do what he tells them to do. Hebrews 11 verse seven says, by faith Noah condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. We had two Noah ball games, and we, bo- we about got both of them in. They both. And so when we look at Noah's life, what we learn is that we got to hear God's voice. We have to take him at his word, and we have to do what God's asking us to do. And when we do, we please God. And we are rewarded for that kind of faith. That's the kind of faith Noah had, and it is the exact kind of faith that God wants to shape in each and every one of us.